You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Let's ask God to help us. Oh God, we thank you that you invite us to hear you speak through your word. And we ask that you would show us in these next few minutes ways to do this, and then it would help us to see you, Jesus, so clearly and to be so glad to be with you. And if you have any invitation for us, that we would hear it. So we trust you in this. In the name of Jesus, in the presence of Jesus, in the great power of Jesus. Amen. So you've heard that phrase that the longest, the longest distance is the 18-inch gap between head and heart, right? And getting the facts that you know into your being, getting them into your body even, getting them into your life is such a chore. Well, I think that's exactly what um, Joshua was talking about in Joshua 1.8 that wonderful verse where he talks about, let me see, I wanna, do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. And you have to remember, this isn't a group that had a Bible in front of them. We've only had that for like 300 years. These were people who, who had learned it by heart. I, I don't even like the word memorize. I learned passages by heart. They'd learned it by heart, they, and they muttered it, and they said it all the time, which is such a fun thing to do when you can't get back to sleep. I highly recommend a psalm. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Walk around with it. When, when I'm learning a passage by heart, I have it in 20-point type in my purse, and I'm standing in the Home Depot line. Okay, okay, okay. Having a good time with it. And then it says, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. This is where I get my phrase, you do the connecting and God does the perfecting. That's what happened with Tammy, is that I'd been connecting with God and so I was able to love her and treat her with respect. And that's what scripture meditation does. Meditate on it day and night, you do the connecting and then you may be careful to do everything written in it. God does the perfecting. That's how it works. Dallas always said that our greatest freedom we have is where we put our mind. So what am I gonna think about when I'm in the car? And what am I gonna think about when I'm mowing the lawn? And what am I gonna think about you know, when I'm clearing off the counter? What is it I'm going to think about? Where am I gonna put my head? And I've left the committee members up here because that's where we go too often. That's why we need to talk to Jesus about them and and say, okay, I needed them at one point, but I don't need them now. 
because it's where we put our mind. In fact, it could be said that they become our meditation because that's where we put our head so much. But scripture meditation, highly recommended. It's mentioned 15 times in Psalms um, with that idea of focusing on God. Um, and you kind of wonder why we don't talk about it very much. You know, we have a lot of Bible studies, but we don't seem to talk about scripture meditation, even though it's in scripture. And I think that's, be there's several reasons for it. One of them is that people think, well, you know, this is a, this is a, a practice done by Eastern religions. Well, you know why that doesn't work is that Eastern religions, all world religions do some form of prayer. Gandhi prayed, and he was Hindu, so are you going to stop praying? No. Um, the Dalai Lama, head of Tibetan Buddhism, quotes Jesus, so are you going to stop quoting Jesus? No. And what we do is we take a practice and we say, how would a Christian do this? And so scripture meditation, we focus on scripture, and especially on Jesus and what Jesus said. And so for Christians, meditation is a meeting with Jesus. It's hearing from God. And so then I think we also don't meditate because we think study is enough. Ugh, you can see my little chart there that I have. Study is wonderful and you want to study, but study is only step one. In study, you dissect the text. You wanna know who said what, the context, the, the cross references, and we'll do some of that tonight. But meditation is where you savor the text and enter into it. Um, in study, you're asking questions about the text. And in meditation, the text, actually the spirit, is asking questions of you. So this is how I think of the difference. Let's say I put your favorite candy bar on the top of this book. And we cut it up in little pieces. We are dissecting it, right? And we're finding out if it has nuts or if it has anything you might be allergic to, we're also finding out if it has what you really want, the dark chocolate, right? So we're, we're checking. Now, what if we dissected it and then we just set it here and walked away? That's what I think we do with the Bible a lot. And we'll say, oh, thank you, Ryan, for your sermon. I got so many nuggets out of it. I don't know, I think I have a thing with the word nuggets. Um, because what it is, is it's conversation with God. And God is inviting you into conversation. And what that means is that you need to respond. And you need to take whatever it was that was said in that sermon and talk to Jesus about it. Or take whatever it was that you read in your Bible this morning and talk to Jesus about it. Focus on it. Sit with it. Be able to be quiet with it and take it into yourself. And so meditation is like when you pick up a piece of the candy bar and you put it on your tongue and you leave it there for a few seconds at least. And isn't that the delightful part? And yet we skip meditation. We skip step two. And I just urge you, please, do it. The scripture talks about doing it. And we want, we want to um, be able to move in that. So what is scripture meditation? Well, it's, it's just focusing on the passage. It's being able to move through it slowly so that we can hear what God is saying to us. And you may say, well, okay, but like, how do you do it? Well, you know, the only way you know how to do most spiritual practices is you look at the Christian community. 
if people want to know how to study the Bible, they buy Bible studies from people like me. Or, and they take classes, so we learn from the community. So 2,000 years of Christian community, one of the, out, the most common method of, of meditating on scripture actually started about 400 AD, and it was when Constantine declared Christianity legal, and the newcomers class got really big. And so all these, they got all these newcomers in a, in a room who were illiterate for the most part, and they read aloud a passage very slowly. And you know, you haven't really heard a passage, so you've heard it twice, really. And then they read it again slowly. And then they were asked, well, um, what stood out to you in this passage? What, what, what word or phrase shimmered? What detail was big for you? Now, this, this process was called in Latin, Lexio Divina. But it's organic. Have, it, have you ever read a passage of scripture and you've read it and you've said, I didn't know that verse was in there. I know that verse. I didn't know that word was in there. I had that experience with a passage I know by heart the other day. I went, what's that word doing in there? I didn't know that. That's organic. That's that Lexio process of where God causes something to stand out to you. So you read the passage, you reflect on the passage, meditatio or meditation, and then you read it again, because this is how they did it, because people were illiterate. It was read four times total. But then there was a process of praying, because the, the thought was that this is conversation with God. If God speaks to you, you want to speak back. Our goal in prayer is to have a conversational life with God. And that happens as we speak back. For me, when I do scripture meditation, I actually write my prayer, because Otherwise, my mind goes visiting, you know, or something, I don't know. Um, and it keeps me more dialed in, and it's more concrete, and I'm actually quite surprised by what I write. Um, I think the spirit kind of gets in there and does things, and it's, um, it's very helpful to me. And then the last part, contemplation. That's the, or rest, but contemplation, really soaking in it, letting it sink all the way down, Dallas used to say he thinks the contemplation phase is actually worship. I think that's really true. I think that when, when we finish with a, a passage, it's time to, to tell God just how great we think he is. To say, this is, this is something about Jesus that I never saw before, which I'm hoping we will do in a few minutes. So that whole process... So that's kind of an, an overview, but you know, you can do it. There's many different ways to do it. But that's, those are some general things that are put into it. And then kind of a spin off that is what I sometimes call picture prayer. And um, this, this is actually the way the Jews practice Passover. What they did is they took the section that they took what happened at, pa at the original Passover and they acted it out like it was a movie. They wore the same traveling clothes and they ate the same food. Really, they were, it's like they were making a movie. And that's what we're going to do tonight, is we're going to take a scene from the Gospels and we're going to enter into it and see what it is that, um, if I had been a fly on the wall, if I had been there, what would I have noticed? 
what I have found myself in one of the people, and what you do is you don't try to, you don't try to make this work. You never force it. But sometimes the Spirit will have you become a person in a passage and it's not even who you wanted to be. That happened with me with John 12 um, a few years ago. That's where um, Mary anoints Jesus at Bethany. Well, I really wanted to be Mary, you know, because she's like the cool person. But I started out as Judas, that was weird. <laughs> and I read, N.T. Wright said that he knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. Okay, that would be me, maybe. Um, and so that was then the next day, because I stay in the passage. For as long as God's talking to me, I stay in the passage. And you may say, well, you'll never get through the Bible. Well, that's not my goal. My goal, I want to be a person who reads the entire Bible, but not tomorrow and not even maybe this year. I would rather hear God in the, in the, the 10 verses or less that I read that day. And, and I'll move around. It'll happen. But anyway, I ended up in it for a week. I was the crabby disciples for a while, and then I finally got to be Mary. It was wonderful. But the Spirit was deciding all of this, and I just uh, took a while. So you may say to me, uh-oh, this is, this is like really goofy. I'm an engineer. I don't do this kind of stuff. I can tell she's a real live-in-your-head person. Well, okay. Think of the most contemplative person in Scripture. That would probably be David, who wrote the Psalms, right? This is one active guy. He's a bear killer. He was Rambo. So don't give me this, you know, oh, I just can't do this, you know, that kind of, okay. This, is, this isn't a personality issue. This is a skill you develop like you develop good woodworking, right? And it's like that. You learn it, and maybe the first time you do it, you go, that's a little strange. But you just keep at it. The first time you studied the Bible, you went, oh, that was a lot. <laughs> you know, I need some ice cream or something. Um, and and it's the first time you do a spiritual practice, it can be that way. And then there's others of you who are going, uh-oh, I heard what she said. If I were in the passage, how would it affect me? She wants me to use my imagination. She doesn't know that I don't have one. I can prove to you that you have a very skilled imagination, no matter who you are. And I can prove it to you with one question. Can you worry? If you can worry, you have a great imagination. And you have been, you have been honing that skill for a long time. All worry is you go, yeah, but what if? Okay, well, what if you lived at the same time with Jesus and he walked up to you and said, you know, okay, so you can do this. This is not, you know, it, it takes a little bit of getting used to, but you have the basic skills. You're, you're good. So as we do this, part of what needs to happen is that you need to set aside your own agenda. That's another reason why I've left the committee up here. Because some people, when they meditate on scripture, every passage they hear says, you got to help people. Every passage they hear says, you got to be better, self-improvement. Every passage they hear says, she should read this. Um, and because they're just operating out of those lenses. We need to set those folks aside. And just really let the Holy Spirit say whatever the Holy Spirit wants to say to me today. It's, it's worded so well in James. Welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to restore, to bring to health your soul. And then I also want to say that 
meditation is not application. Application is a wonderful thing. I've been writing Bible study curriculum in, since the mid-80s, and I know how to do application. I have a whole grid. How does this affect your health, your finances, your relationships, the whole thing? And that is, that is wonderful left brain work, but you are doing the work. You are driving the bus. In meditation, you aren't driving the bus. You're listening, you're doing your study, and then you're listening to what the spirit would say. And the spirit may want to talk to you about something you would never come up with. In fact, that's often how you know it is the spirit, because it's a little surprising. Not what you would have come up with. So this is so application and meditation are really very different. They're both good, but they're very different. So I think those are the um, main things that we want to talk about before we do the exercise. The way that we're going to do this is we're going to look at the passage of scripture. We're going to study it together, but I'll be asking you some questions. And I know you're good at answering, so that'll be good. And then we'll pause, and I'll just ask you to quiet yourself, and, um, and then I'll read the passage aloud to you. And after that, I'll start asking questions. And these will be questions you don't need to you don't need to answer aloud. If you want to write some of your answers, you can, but you will have a time where you will be able to express them. But you want to hold your answers to yourself at that point. And then we'll take some time for sharing. So the passage we're going to look at is on page two of your handouts. This is a very familiar passage to you. And I'm going to present it perhaps differently than what you have heard before. Um, this is the famous passage of Jesus and Peter walking on water. So the background for this, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Now you want to think about these disciples. All they did was walk up to him and he kept handing them more. And they're walking away. <laughs> you know, do you have some? He just gave me more. So they're, they're really confused and pretty dazed as to what was that about? Who does this? They've never seen this before. This is so odd. And of course, this makes everybody happy and they want to make him king. And Jesus operates in hiddenness. He doesn't stand around for the book signing. He's always escaping. But before he does, he puts them in the boat and he says, I will meet you on the other side, which is a very interesting phrase. And so they're off, they're off crossing the Sea of Galilee. And I start out here with Jesus sees their struggle, and I'm giving you the background in Mark 6, 47. So as we start out, it says, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Now, Let's think about how this would work. The Sea of Galilee is about 12 miles long and about seven miles wide. And Jesus is up on a mountain. So he is seeing at least 10 miles away. When was the last time you saw 10 miles away? Yeah, I love that face. Yeah. I just, and I just, that right there, I just love that metaphor. You know, no matter how lost you feel, Jesus is seeing you right where you are, not having any trouble with this. 
So he sees them at the oars because the wind is against them. And we want to think about what this was like. There, um, the, this is near Passover, so you have a full moon, so that you could see some, and then, but you wouldn't be able to see well because there was wind. So if it's, we're going to start on the next verse in Matthew 14, the fourth watch of the night. So that would be between three and six. So I want you just for a minute, put yourself in the disciples' place. It's between three and six, and you've been struggling against the oars all night. How do you think these guys were feeling? What would you, if you were a disciple, what would you see, hear, taste, touch, and smell? Yes, maybe a little bit of panic, yes. And that would include the non-fishermen who had no idea what was going on and the fishermen going, oh my gosh, I know what's going on and I still, this is still bad news. So some panic, what else? Tired? Yes, very tired. Your muscles would hurt, um, very afraid, which would make your muscles even more tense. What else? Fear, yes. Well, you have to remember, when you say, why isn't Jesus saving us? They didn't know what you know. They didn't wake up that morning and read Matthew 14. They didn't know that he could control weather. And so that would not have occurred to them. They were still trying to figure out what was with the loaves and fishes. So it wouldn't occur to them that he could really help them. Oh, do we have it up there? Okay, we don't need it quite yet. Thank you. Um, so they probably didn't think that. They, they didn't associate that people who can heal can also control weather. So what else? I, I imagine they had legs and arms that were bleeding because they'd been dashed against the side of the boat. They were probably, how, what temperature do you think they were? Yes, very, very cold. Yes, probably soaked. Yes, running on adrenaline, uh, sort of, you know, by this time. So you want to see where they are. And then we move to Matthew 14, 25. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now, I want you just to think about this for a minute. Jesus is on the shore. He's seen that they're in trouble, and he decides he needs to go to them, right? Think about what his choices were. I, I just love to think about this, how, how logical Jesus is. He know, he's going, I could get in a boat, but a one-man boat, that's not going to go anywhere. I could swim. Okay, I'm, that's probably, I'm not going to make it there for a long time because of the wind and all that. And so in his mind, the most logical thing to do is just to walk on the water. Isn't that amazing? Other options weren't open, so this is, you know, this is an option that I'm sure the Father would, would grant me, and let's do it, because I want to get to these guys. I don't want to leave them out there by themselves. So he's walking on the lake, and when you picture this, walking on the lake, you want to kind of forget the flannel graph days where you have Jesus on a hoverboard, you know, just kind of 
moving across the water because if it's choppy, he's having to walk on top of each of the waves. This was not even an easy task at this. And to be able that this, this is what's coming toward them. Someone who is actually, they're moving up and down and, and all of that. And, and this is a very strenuous thing. And so when the disciples, then in verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. This is really a most logical response because nobody walks on water. Yes. Exactly. Yes, he had to come a long ways and, and, and they didn't know what it was. They, so they were crying out in fear. And then it's so beautiful, verse 27. But Jesus waits a long time, and then he says, is that what the passage says? Immediately, Jesus said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. There's your most frequent command in scripture, don't be afraid. The positive version of which is, trust me. And when he says, it is I, it's the same Greek construction as all of his I am's in John. So these guys are in this boat, straining, and they're thinking, okay, that's the way he would say it. And now he's telling us, don't be afraid, which is what he tells everybody. And so by this time, at best, they're confused. Besides being cold, adrenaline, all of those things that you said. And so, I mean, we really have to have a lot of mercy on these guys. This had to be a wild experience. And Jesus immediately saying that, that word's going to occur um, several times. So then we have scene three. Peter comes, asked to come to Jesus. And so he says, Lord, if it's you. And you know, that is a really logical thing for him to say, because they're not sure if they're losing their minds or what. And so he says, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And I just love Jesus' short answer, come. And so he says that. Um, then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. Jesus has been working with these guys. And the way that this works, people, people always talk about, oh, Peter's so impetuous, and they diss Peter. I, I want you to rethink this. What happened in those days is that you've, a good Jewish man found a rabbi and they followed them. They lived in the dust of their rabbi. If their rabbi ate a certain kind of beans, they ate a certain kind of beans. If their rabbi wore a certain kind of sandals, they wore a certain kind of sandals. They did everything their rabbi did. They followed their rabbi. What Peter was doing here, he was doing what his rabbi did. It didn't occur to him as a disciple to do anything else but to do what the rabbi said. But he's the only one that it occurred to, to follow his rabbi. When I think about the two of them walking and meeting, 
I think about when, when I'm teaching and I have a favorite student and I'm not supposed to have a favorite student so I cover it up really well. But you know, you're listening and you're going, this, this kid gets it. They really get it. Mm -hmm, yes, uh-huh, yeah. You know, and I'm, and I'm thinking that Jesus is going, this one gets it. This one is willing to do whatever I do and what that must have been like for Jesus, and then what it was like for Peter, because he's, you know, he's still like, what? And he's probably still cold, still running on adrenaline, still doing all those things. And so this is really a great moment. Peter is the only one besides Jesus who ever walks on water. Paul is in shipwrecks, and he never walks on water. So Peter's the only one who puts this on his resume, walked on water three seconds, you know, or however long it was. Um, Dallas has a great quote in Hearing God where he says, if we are to live in constant union with God in daily life, we need to lead our lives before God in an open, adventurous, and reflective manner. Open, what is God saying to me? Adventurous, there's your risk. Adventurous and reflective. We don't learn from experience. We learn from reflecting on experience. And that, that's part of my invitation always when I read this passage, to live my life in an open, adventurous, and reflective manner. I, I was backing off from doing that the other day, and, my friend, and I texted my friend, and she goes, Jan, you're used to doing hard things. And I said, okay, yes, that's true, that open, adventurous, and reflective manner. So, then we have Peter in verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Now, I want to stop right there for a minute. Part of what I do is I'm a spiritual director, and I've been doing this since 1995. And I have people who, my directees whom I love, they sit in the chair across from me, and when they blow it, they start to beat themselves up. I do not interrupt them generally, but I will do, I try not to, but I sometimes will and say, this isn't the time to beat yourself up. This is the time to say, Lord, save me. Lord, save me is a very good way to respond when you fail, when you don't get it right. Lord, save me. This isn't all up to you. You are not the star of your spirituality. Jesus is. So what Peter did here is, is really quite lovely. And he actually thought Jesus would do it. He didn't think Jesus would reject him. He thought Jesus would, would help him. And so he says, Lord, save me. And then, so Jesus waits a while to catch him? No, here's that word immediately again. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. And the words... Well, let me just say this. Usually people think that Jesus is just so terribly disappointed in Peter. When Peter has been the one who has done, he's walked in the dust of his rabbi. And they think that because of the next words. Let's look at the next words a little bit more closely. First of all, you of little faith is the Greek word all rolled together, all agapistoi. It's not used anywhere else in any literature except in the New Testament, and Jesus uses it as a nickname. 
And I often think of him as my little novices. It, it, it's a term of endearment. What is Jesus' opinion of little faith? Little faith is a grain of, and what can it do? It can move mountains. And so he has a high opinion of little faith. And the other people apparently didn't have much faith at all, the, the people all around them, but the disciples, and he calls them that, my little faiths. I always picture him kind of, you know, messing with their hair. My little faiths. But we, we take it to be an insult. And I think that's because our attitude police governs our reading of scripture. So you have little faith. And then he says, why did you doubt? This question, when you think about it, what would be the answer? I doubt because nobody does this. And so I take this to be, in spiritual direction, I will often ask my directees a question that I know they're not going to be able to answer right there. They're going to have to take it home and think about it. And that's what I think this was, is why did you doubt? It's going to get wild. Start thinking now about what it means to trust me. What does it look like? What is trust and what is doubt? So I don't see this as a scolding. And that's where um, I'd like, now I'm ready for the PowerPoint slide. This is um, one of my favorite um, renditions. This is Jesus, and he's hugging Peter as he picks him up. What if Jesus thought this was great fun? He immediately reaches out his arm and catches him, calls him by an endearing name, and asks him a thoughtful question. What if Jesus isn't mad at Peter? What if Jesus doesn't think Peter's dumb? What if, what if Jesus really loves him? To me, this is a more realistic portrayal of how it would have come down based on the text when you look at the whole context of how Jesus spoke to the disciples in his opinion of little faith. I just want us to ponder this for a minute. Am I okay with Jesus loving Peter in the middle of all of this? Rather than the judgy interpretation that is often given. My own experience with Jesus is that he will look at me and often say, girl, try something wild, I'll catch you. And I'm still going, I don't really want to fly to Hong Kong and talk to those people. <laughs> it could be that in the moments where you have felt that you failed God the most, that Jesus has been right there catching you. And my job is just to say, Lord, save me. We'll just go ahead and leave that up. Thank you. Um, and then and when they climbed into the boat, this is verse 32, the wind died down. I think that's a nice touch. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. So what I'd like for us to do now is I would invite you to set aside your handouts and to just quiet yourself. You probably 
want to close your eyes. Others of you go, no, then I'll go to sleep. Well, you know what? If you go to sleep, that's probably what you needed. I'm not worried about that. Um, but I would just, or you may want to stare or whatever, but I would just invite you to, instead of thinking really hard about this, just be open, adventurous, and reflective and see what God says to you. I'm going to read the passage to you, and I want you to notice the word or phrase or the moment in the story that stands out to you. And then I'll lead you through some questions. So collect yourself. Lord Jesus, bless the hearing of the words of this passage. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God.
Notice what word or phrase or moment stands out to you. What was the most real to you? As you notice what stands out to you, I invite you to ask Jesus, why is that standing out to me? And you might just hold your answer. I'm going to ask you to share it in a few minutes. But just ask Jesus, why why would that stand out to me? You might ask Jesus, is there anything I need to know? Is there anything you're inviting me to believe? Is there anything you're inviting me to feel? Is there anything you're inviting me to realize more deeply? As you ponder this, respond to God. Is there anything you want to thank God for or ask God for? And it's okay to respond with, I don't get it. (laughs) But you want to respond to God about this passage, about anything that has stood out to you.
And as we finish this phase, let's, let's join together to do the contemplation, the worship phase. Just call out what you most admire about Jesus. What moment in, in, this, in this encounter do you, do you just love him for? Do you admire him for? Are you fascinated by him? Pardon? Okay. His compassion. Yes, immediately reached out. Yes. His love. Yeah, his calm. His control of the environment. He loved Peter when he was weak. Yes. He loved Peter when he was weak. That's something we don't do well, do we? Loving people when they're weak. He didn't fix it from afar. He went to be with them. Highly relational. No hesitation. A joyful laugh. Oh God, we thank you for the way that you lead us and help us to see you through these eyes. And we ask you now as we um, do this one last thing that you would help us with this. Sometimes we can't articulate things very well and we just need your help. So we ask you to help us. We always need your help. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.